Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Jan. Good afternoon, everyone. Officially good afternoon. We've all said hi already, but good afternoon. Welcome to everyone that is here. Welcome to anyone who will be listening to this on our website. We um, There's a couple of gentlemen in Buffalo who uh, join us on the weekly um, Bible study. Who, uh, One in particular and his friend who uh, have uh, told us that they want to be part of our congregation. So they are, they are receiving the bulletin. Now he is receiving the bulletin. Um, he uh, can't make it... Uh, up here, uh, um, but he is part of our congregation. So again, I uh, would like to uh, extend uh, greetings to him. I know he'll be listening to this once it uh, is put up on the website. So I'd certainly welcome him as well. Last Sabbath, after talking about the New Jerusalem and the Kingdom of God in the sermon, we went into detail in the Bible study as well about the resurrection and how it fits into the overall narrative of the Bible. How the resurrection, you recall, we talked about how the resurrection is part of the solution to restore mankind to the state that they were in, that Adam and Eve were in, when they were in the Garden of Eden. That was where we started out. And we saw through the storyline of the Bible, we walked through from Genesis to Revelation, that God was pleased to dwell to come to earth and dwell with his creation at various points throughout our history and to dwell amongst us. The most obvious time that comes to mind was when he was spent over 33 years here, was crucified for his teachings, and was ultimately resurrected back into his spirit body and now awaits his return to bring with him the kingdom of God. Let's just... Before we jump into the message today, go back to Romans 1. Romans 1. I read a passage here at the beginning of Paul's letter to Rome. Read at the beginning of his letter, Romans 1, verse 1. Paul he starts out, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sorry, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So not just the prophets, but his prophets, because they spoke for him, and we know him as Yahweh, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So all of this declaration that Christ came from the Godhead, him and his father, he was came to this earth to dwell amongst us, to take on human form, to... Be born of the seed of David. Again, this is stuff we've covered, but it continues to come up because it is part of the story. 
was not just a human prophet, a, someone who came here, but he was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared, when we go back and look through the beginning parts of the Gospels, Zechariah and his, uh, and his prophecy, as I mean Zacharias being John the Baptist's father, Simeon's prophecy, we'll look at that in a little bit again here today, and John the Baptist himself, he was declared to be the Son of God. So this was something extremely, extremely special here. And all of this was made declarative by the resurrection of the dead. That when he was resurrected, that put a lot of pieces into, into place. It's, it's uh, tied a lot of pieces together. And this statement here, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So the resurrection was able to declare all of this. We see that the resurrection is the pivot point, as we learned last week, to this entire process called salvation. Salvation is this long process, and the resurrection is, amounts to the pivot point. It's, it's the pivotal part here. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes into something a little deeper here about the resurrection. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. So back in Romans, he talks about how Christ was preached as the son of God. Here he takes it a little deeper that he has been that Christ. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. If there's no resurrection of the dead, he's simply a human prophet at best and lies in his grave still, if that is true. And if he isn't, if that continues not to be true, the resurrection, then what we talk about here and what we've talked about from time immemorial here, from the time of his death, our preaching is empty. What we're doing here is, is meaningless. And our faith is also empty. Not as just our preaching is empty, but what we believe goes for naught as well. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. Not only is our faith empty, but we would be lying now because we have spent our lifetime here preaching that Christ is raised from the dead. And if he's not, then we are, we are preaching a lie. If in, if, in fact, he reiterates, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then all of this is futile. And not only is all of this futile, we still have our sins. So now we've got this, this other issue on our plate here. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. That if all this is all about is just to make this life good, then what a sad state that we are in. But as we can see here, as he runs down the various lists of doctrinal points here, we can see how in Romans he says the resurrection is pivotal. No resurrection, just read it down here, then Christ isn't risen. Christ isn't risen, all of our faith comes apart. 
If Christ isn't risen, we still have our sins. If Christ isn't risen, we are standing here preaching lies. This one doctrinal point, a whole lot of things pivot off of. In the context of the resurrection being the pivot point for the salvation process, everything hinges on the resurrection being a reality. Absolutely everything. The final statement of the Bible study last week was where I'd like to now branch off into. The final statement of the Bible study was this. That if the resurrection is the pivot point, it all begins with the Passover. This all begins with the Passover. As Brother Jan mentioned, Passover is a little over five weeks away. We're starting to ramp up into it. You can tell by the hymns that were chosen. You can, we are to that point in the youth study where we're starting to, talk, to touch on those subjects. A great study today on the Egyptian slavery. It says, we prepare ourselves, we ramp up here to commemorate this most sacred event again, another time, this year. And for the benefit of those listening to this online, I would like to fit this concept of Passover into the narrative. We continue to talk about this narrative or this storyline, but it's important. Every time we, we add another piece to the, the, the puzzle here, we see that this is just one grand story from beginning to end. But as we heard last week, it all begins with the Passover. Why does it begin with the Passover? That's what we're going to talk about today. As we start, for the benefit of those who may not know what we're talking about when we use this word narrative, we have become familiar here in our congregation with this term narrative or storyline. Consider this big book that you're holding in your hands or is in front of you, full of laws, full of history, full of strange prophecies that sometimes make sense, don't make sense if you read them, if you just pull them out of context. These prophecies about an ancient group, ancient group of people that seem to be hard to identify with. With some kinder, gentler teachings from this man named Jesus thrown in the mix. Followed up by these letters to churches that, when taken out of context, seem to prove things that aren't true. Or contradict things that we read when taken out of context. And then we close out this book with this eerie vision, this futuristic vision from this last surviving apostle. That's how some perceive this book. And maybe you've perceived this book that way. And if you have perceived this book this way, it does sound intimidating. It does sound overwhelming, maybe even irrelevant. Who are these people, Israel, that, that they talk about it's a little wonder why you may have passed on cracking open this book. But what if I were to tell you, and we're familiar here in this congregation, but let's think back here if, you, if you're new to reading the Bible. What if I were to tell you that this is the coolest book ever written? This is the most exciting, better than any novel that has ever been written. It tells the story of how God created man to live in eternity with him, not in heaven, but here on earth, in paradise. The plot of this story then turns to where 
we reject this eternity in a small moment of pleasure. The plot turns there. The heroes of the story, not us, but God the Father and his Son, then set out on a plan to restore us, restore man, this character man, to his former state of being with them, again in paradise, again here on earth, not in heaven. And he does his intention here is to restore this character man to this eternal paradise here on this earth. When you consider that is the that is the storyline of the Bible, that sounds like something you might want to read. And what makes it even better is it's nonfiction. It's a it's a work of truth. So before we jump into how Passover fits in, I do want to take time again to just go over this storyline quickly. Let's go to Genesis 1. We've seen how, in recent weeks, we've seen how the resurrection fits into the timeline. We've seen how the tabernacle fits into the timeline. The temple fits into the timeline. The throne of David fits into the timeline. The storyline, sorry, I'm using the word timeline. I mean storyline or the narrative. We are now about to embark on the celebration of Passover, prepare ourselves. And it's as Brother Jan mentioned, it is a, it's such a deep topic. It simply can't be covered in one message. In fact, we could probably talk about it until Passover comes and not cover everything that there's possible, possibly to cover in the deep meaning of Passover. But Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, man, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to every creep, everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God creates this, creates us. We're in this paradise-like setting, and he gives us complete oversight over all that he has created. Everything here on this earth, every living thing, everything that, that he has created, he has given man complete oversight over. Verse 15 of chapter 2. I'm just going to hit some highlights here. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So we've been given oversight. We now need to take care of it. Because this is our home. This thing that he created that was very good, as we just read. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. He just went over all these things that we could eat back in verse 29 and 30. So now we're looking out amongst this paradise-like home that, that, that we're in. And it said, eat anything that is here. 
except this one tree that's right there, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So have, have your pick. The story continues, but don't eat from that one tree. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So we've been created to have dominion over this earth, to, to live in this paradise-like setting, to eat whatever we want except for this one tree. When I say eat anything we want, I'm specifically talking about vegetation here. We'll get to that's part of the storyline that we don't need to get into today. Right here we're talking about the vegetation that we can eat. And then here in verse 18, he creates us, he creates a partner for Adam, for man. This partner, this helpmate, was the first one that the adversary came down to talk to in chapter 3. Here's where we start to see the plot of the story turn. The serpent, chapter 3, verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of that one tree in the midst of the garden? God has said, You won't eat of that. Because if you do touch it, not just eat, don't even touch it, because if you touch it, you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, You'll not die. You're not going to die. For God knows, in the day that you eat of it, not only won't you die, you'll be like him. You'll be able to see things and comprehend things you never possibly could have thought to comprehend. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it could be eaten, not that it should be eaten, but that it could be eaten, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate it. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them, just as promised, were opened. Except, not for good. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And God says, what in the world did you do? What in the world did you get yourselves into? Unfortunately, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold our creation, this man has become like one of us. Before he was ready to be like one of us. Long before that was part of our plan. Remember, that was part of the plan. We read that in chapter 1. Is to be made in the image and the likeness of God. But that was part, that was a process. Here, he's jumped the gun. We've jumped, we've jumped ahead here, taking it upon ourselves to become like God before God was ready to make us like God, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. We're going to drive him out of, we're going to kick him out of paradise. We must. For his sake. For his sake. Not because we want to, because, but because we cannot have a sinful man live forever. We just can't have that. That's not part of this plan. So in order for the plan to, to, to continue on, we need to take a turn here in the story 
and banish us, banish man from the paradise. So man is kicked out of the garden for our own good, for our own good. Sort of reading back into the story there. Genesis 12 becomes part of the, the narrative that your Bibles probably just fall open to. So as part of this plan, skipping ahead in the story here, part of this storyline is now where the plot turns to try to bring us back into paradise. And that's where much of the story now goes. The Lord God said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God now selects a family, a specific group of people, through whom he will work to bless all of the earth. What is that blessing that all of the earth will will partake of? An opportunity to return to paradise. An opportunity to be back in that back in glory with God as long as we want to be there. And wanting to be there, of course, means obeying him. But that's all part of some of the story that we continue to learn as we walk through scriptures. And I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Speaking of getting ahead of myself, let's go to Revelation 21. Because we're not here to cover the narrative. We're here to remind us what the narrative is and then see how Passover fits into it. We have fit other things into it. Let's see how Passover fits into this. Remembering the introduction to the story that we've just gone through and why we're in the current part of the story that we're currently in, we now look forward to how the story ends. And the story ends at a futuristic time, beginning in chapter 21 of verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We've just read that our actions, the actions of the first, the first man, the first couple, brought pain, brought sin, brought punishment upon us, brought sorrow. The story ends, this narrative ends, where there will be no such thing as death anymore. There will be no such thing as sorrow. There will be no such thing as, as, as crying or pain. Verse chapter 22, he showed me a pure river, verse 1, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God of the, and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. We just read how we were banished from even going near the tree of life. Well, guess what? The story ends that we'll be back 
and able to partake of that tree of life, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we can see, we can see the, how the, the story plays out here. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of, and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They, sh- they need no lamp nor sun of the light, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We'll have dominion on this new earth forever and ever. So the plan that was part of the original, uh, what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, comes to fruition. The rest of the book, the rest of the book from Genesis 13 to Revelation 20 is how we get there. How do we get from being dumped out of the garden, shunned, banished, having flaming swords protect the garden so that we can't get back into the home that was made for us? Imagine having your home stolen from you, taken from you, being banished from your home, and having... Guards prevent you from getting back in. That's what happened. That's what happened to us. The story ends where we are back in paradise. On earth, a brand new earth. In paradise, partaking of the tree of life. How did we get there? That's the storyline. We call the narrative. That's, the, that's, the, that's what we call the storyline. Or the narrative. And it all begins, as we heard the end of last week's Bible study with Passover. We are now in a, a, we are about 25 days from a new year in God's calendar system. A new beginning again for another year where we partake of and commemorate the plan of salvation through the Holy Day system, the worship system that God provided for us. And it begins with Passover. Let's go back to Genesis 12. And kick off this Passover preparation period by looking at Passover and how it fits into the storyline. How do we get from being banished from the garden, banished from paradise, to being welcomed back and partaking of the tree of life again? And why does it begin with Passover? God here, we won't read it again, but that covenant that he makes with us that we're very familiar with, but is so critical to the story that we can never forget. He begins to work with a single family, begins to work with Abraham, his second son, the son of promise, Isaac, who then his second son, Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. Of prominence, Joseph which we talked about in the youth study today. His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which we talked about a study or two ago. Judah, which we heard briefly about today in the introduction to the study. And Levi, those are some of the sons that actually played key roles. Genesis 50. Let's go to Genesis 50. We'll skip, we skipped quickly over Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We come now to the end of Joseph's life. 
which we heard again in the, the youth study today. Verse 22 of Genesis 50. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So he was able to see his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, his great-great-grandchildren. Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We heard in the youth study reference back to Genesis 15, where God first made mention to Abraham that the people that their family would eventually and ultimately go into slavery to a people that, that would be calling the shots, would remove their freedom from them. This, this story, this narrative that has been passed down through the generations from Abraham, it was a promise from God that Abraham passed to Isaac, Isaac passed to Jacob, Jacob passed to his sons, and here Joseph was reminding all of his, all of his brothers and sisters and their families, as Joseph said to his brethren, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land and return you to the land that I promised you. That's a promise. We, this is... Everything that they believed in revolved around that promise. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He made them promise to take his bones with them. Exodus 1. We're beginning to lead into Passover here now. Verse 8, again little repetition from the youth study today. There arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. So generations had passed to the point where, and you can think of similar situations, maybe in your life or maybe in politics. Alliances happen. Several generations later, those alliances don't mean much anymore to folks who are several generations removed. Here we see that. He didn't know Joseph. Not only didn't he know, because he didn't know Joseph, he didn't know the reason why those people were there. Remember when Joseph's dreams were interpreted, the people of Egypt were blessed. We heard about that today. They got through a famine. They became a superpower. Not because of the Pharaoh, but because of God's blessings on Joseph and how he interpreted those dreams and how he prepared the people to survive that famine. Look, the people of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come and let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So they're trying to squash them and and sort of compress them to where they become not not as much of a threat. And the more they tried to do this, the more they multiplied and grew. So now they're scared. They want to protect their superpower. And they're and they're in fear. Not just a little scared, they were in dread, it says, of the children of Israel. 
So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with heart bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. We see that fear leads to affliction. This fear that they had led to this bondage, this affliction that they put on top of the, the, on, on the, the children of Israel, these children of Joseph. God's people are placed in slavery to, appears, uh, to appease the fear of the new leaders of Egypt so that they can feel stronger, they can feel more powerful, they can feel less, more importantly, they feel less threatened. Chapter 3, verse 7. Moses now, this part of the narrative that we didn't read, this Israelite baby that was protected by God and saved and was raised in the Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's home, flees Egypt because of a, a murder that he committed, a, a protecting one of his his brethren, one of his his Israelite brethren. He flees. Later on in his life, here we come to chapter 3. God calls him personally. God again comes down to dwell with Moses, to introduce himself to Moses. Verse 4, the Lord God turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. He continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So this teaching these children of Israel continued to happen. They knew who God was. Moses, all God had to do was remind him that he was the God of his father, his, his patriarchs, his ancestors. And Moses immediately was respectful and knew he was speaking to the God of Israel. The Lord continued, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of, the taskmaster, of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. Remember we read in Revelation, there will be no more sorrow. God is, God is sensitive to the pain of his creation, the pain of his people. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land that from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, that land that he promised their ancestors, his father, Abraham. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I hear their cry. I see their pain. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people out. Remember that promise I made? I'm going to do it through you. You can bring my people out of Egypt. Moses continued, you want me to do this? I can't speak. I stutter. I, I'm not a very self-confident guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Me? Moses? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the people of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, 
You shall serve God on this holy mount. I will be with you. I will do it. When I do it, remember that I promised it, and that shall be a sign to you. Continue dropping down to verse 14. God said to Moses, when Moses, let's go back to verse 13. We don't need to skip there. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? They're going to ask me who sent you. What shall I say? Because Egypt's, the Egyptian culture was full of gods, absolutely full of gods. Which God are you serving, Moses? What should, what should I tell them? You tell them, I am who I am. You tell them, Yahweh sent you. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, not just to Egyptians, but say to my children, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, Moses, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So when you go down and prepare my people to come out of Egypt, and they say, What authority do you have? Why are you saying this? You're, you're talking like a crazy man. You just tell them Yahweh sent you. Yahweh, the God of your fathers. The I am that I am. We recap the, we see that what happens there in chapter 3. We continue down, verse 14. Verse 16, sorry. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 19, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, nor even by a mighty hand. So I want you to go do this, but expect him not to let you go. He's going to have too much pride, too much arrogance, too much fear. He's going to feel too threatened to want to let you go. So I will stretch out my hand, and strike Egypt with all of my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he's going to let you go. I'm going to do so much damage. I'm going to show that he does not have dominion over this earth. I do. And when I want my people to go, they'll simply walk out of Egypt. And not only, they're not, not only are they just going to walk out of Egypt, they're going to beg you to leave. They're going to fill your, your, your wagons with stuff. They're going to want you to get out. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. They're just going to give whatever it takes. Just get out. Take everything you need and leave. I am sent you. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has sent you. We then, as the storyline flows, see the various plagues that God uses. He promised these wonders that he would he would hit Egypt with to show that he was there is only one God and it is he it is he Yahweh. Remember that God's goal. We read about it at the beginning. We read about it at the end. And we read about it in the covenant that His goal is for all the families on the earth to be blessed. All the families on the earth are to be blessed. He is working through this family of Israel to show his glory 
not theirs. This has nothing to do with the glory of Israel. Brother Jan covered that a little bit in the youth study. This has nothing to do with how great they are. This has everything to do with glorifying Yahweh. But the path of salvation, this the way to get from being banished from Eden to being able to partake of the tree of life again, goes through this family. God is using this family called Israel. Exodus 11 is where the story now takes us. We're getting approaching now the story of the Passover. The many plagues that they went through, that they were hit with, we now come to one last plague. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh in Egypt. And it is going to be a good one. This is the one. Remember I told you way back this, uh, that they would just beg you to leave? This one, they're going to want you to get out. After, he'll let you go. When I bring this one more plague on Pharaoh in Egypt afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. They'll give you whatever you want. Just ask for it. They're going to give it to you. We'll know what they're going to use that for later. We're going to build the tabernacle out of that, actually. But that's part of a future part of the story that we, we won't go into today. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. Let's, sorry, let's go back to verse 4 of chapter 11. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handbell, and all of the firstborn of the animals. If you're in Egypt and you have a firstborn, he's going to die. Now, that sounds cruel, but those of you who know the storyline and know the history of this time know that Egypt was the one that created the killing of the firstborns. They, they, we know right back from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus, they're the ones that wanted to eliminate the firstborns and had their blood, they dumping the babies' bodies into, into, the, into the, the Nile River. God here was showing his glory and his power through this one last plague. If you were going to be in Egypt and you had a firstborn, he would die. He would die. How could the people show God that they wanted to follow him and be part of this story of salvation? Moses gets into that. God tells Moses, and Moses talks to Aaron and the rest of Israel here in chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. And on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a, house for a, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. And according to each man's need, you shall make, take, make your count for the lamb. And your lamb, the lamb here is going to be pretty critical here to the story. Your lamb shall be without blemish, 
a male of the first year. So a young male baby lamb who, who is perfect. Pick the best one of your flock. He must not have any blemish. You showed, you may, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So select it on the 10th. Keep it until the 14th. The whole assembly of Israel, the congregation of Israel, shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So on the outer posts and across the top of the door. Put some of that lamb's blood. What you've done with that blood, they shall then eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs will they eat it. Don't eat it raw, nor boil it all with water, but roast it in fire with its heads, with its head, with its legs and its entrails. And let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and staff in your hand. And so you shall eat it in haste, because this is the Lord's Passover. So we're starting to see this, how Passover fits into this. All the way back to Abraham and God choosing a family, working through them, bringing them into Egypt, making them a power in Egypt. Then such a power that the Egyptian uh, uh, pharaoh is, is threatened by this and he completely enslaves them. And as we heard in the youth study, God needed to teach them what it was like to be enslaved. And now he's hearing their cry and in his mercy he is coming to, re- to save them. And he's doing so with this time called the Passover. For I will pass through, verse 12, the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see that you have obeyed me, when I see that you want to be part of this community, when I see that I'm offering and you, you haven't earned it, you see that I am offering this way out of slavery, this way out of, of bondage. And all you've got to do is kill this lamb, follow my instructions, and when I see that, I'm going to pass right over, and I won't touch. Your firstborn will not die. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He was striking not just Egypt, not just the Egyptians, but he was striking the land of Egypt. If you were in the land of Egypt, you were, you were prone to this punishment. But all you had to do to get out of it was paint your doorposts and your mantle above the door with this blood. And so, verse 14, this day shall be to you as a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. This wasn't just a one-time event. This was to now be commemorated throughout the generations. And you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. The Passover will be an everlasting ordinance, an unending commemoration. Now, how we commemorate it, that's part of, again, we can't, do, we can't talk about everything today. But how we commemorate it, that changes. That has changed. But the fact that it is a, an everlasting ordinance that will always be kept by God's people 
is made clear here. This event becomes part of their worship system forever. Let's go to Leviticus 23. We've covered this here before, but it's as part of linking Passover to the the storyline here. And for those listening that haven't heard this before, this worship system that was just introduced to us back in Exodus 12, where God said, it shall be a feast to you, an everlasting ordinance, a feast for, for all of your generations. Safely away from Egypt, we've cut through the story. We've moved ahead through the story. They are now safely away from Egypt, about to embark on their journey to the land of promise, not knowing that it was going to take 40 years for them to wander to the land of promise. Yahweh here introduces his system of worship. I've offered this to you. Now you're going to worship me this way. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. These are my feasts. These aren't Jewish festivals. These aren't things only to be kept by the Hebrews. These are God's feasts. God's feasts. It is his system of worship. The Sabbath every week, and we won't take time to go into it here. There's lots of time for us to, over the next number of weeks. But he begins with the Sabbath on a weekly basis. Every seventh day, every seventh day will be the Sabbath. And then over the course of a year, these will be the annual festivals, these annual ordinances that you will keep, that you will worship me with. On specific dates of the year, you will worship me to commemorate various aspects of the plan to bring us back into paradise. So we talked about being kicked out of paradise. We saw that we would ultimately, eventually, be back in paradise. Paradise would be here on earth. God will allow us back into that paradise to partake of that tree of life. And it begins here, this commemoration of the events that will take us from the Garden of Eden being banished to the New Jerusalem, to the kingdom of God, begins here with the Passover. Begins here with Passover. And this Hebrew word for feasts in verse 2, moed. God reserves specific dates throughout the year that are reserved for him. And when you run through the rest of Leviticus 23, you will see these dates that are reserved for him. They don't belong to us anymore. If we are part of this covenant, if we are part of this agreement, if we are on this journey that we've committed to, we now no longer call call our shots on these days. We commit these days to God. The 14th, the first month, the 15th of the first month, the 21st of the first month, 50 days after that Sabbath, we commit that day, the first of the seventh month, the tenth of the seventh month, the fifteenth of the seventh month, the twenty-first of the seventh month. Those days belong to God and are part of our worship to him. And are called the moed or the appointed times. God has booked them with us. He has put them in our calendar. You can write them in your calendar. You can put them on your electronic calendar. Whatever it is that you do, God has booked those times with you. And they are his appointed times. He wants our full attention. So he can constantly remind us what it means to be part of this journey, what it means to be understand this narrative, 
that it is not this, it is not some overwhelming uh, number of historical books that we can understand, but it is it's just one beautiful story that takes us from paradise back into paradise. Genesis 1. Let's go back to Genesis 1. It's important to connect this here when we talk about this. When we choose to follow him, to want to receive the blessing of his plan of redemption, part of the agreement is to set aside these days to worship. So we saw these feasts of the Lord in Leviticus 23, verse 2, that these were Moed, these were appointed times that God set aside. Chapter 1, verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And as you're likely aware, and those that attend here regularly know that this word seasons is that same word moed. So this is not talking about winter, summer, spring, and fall. This is talking about the fact that during creation, God created the heavenly lights, the sun and the moon, to tell us when to worship him. This, wasn't, this worship system wasn't something he dreamt up once Israel left Egypt and he got them out into the wilderness and he said, okay, I need you to focus on me, so we're going to come up with these days. These days were created, these, this holy time, these appointed times. That's why they're called appointed times, because they were, have been appointed from the, from the outset in creation. That word seasons is what that means, that same word moed. The sun tells us when the Sabbath is. The moon tells us when the other days are. Every seventh day, every, time, every seventh time from the time of the first Sabbath, the sun goes down, that's the Sabbath. And that's God's time. And then when the year begins, the 14th day is Passover, every year. When the, the, the 12 cycles of the moon cross and we get to back to that, that cycle again, that new month, that new year starts, we start new with the annual holy days that we went through. Exodus 12, verse 1. Let's go back there quickly. Exodus 12, verse 1. It had always been in place but Israel need to be, needed to be reminded of when it was so they could be part of this worship system again. If they're going to follow this God, if they're going to follow Yahweh, they need to know when to worship him. Chapter 12 and verse 1, we were already there, but let's look at it again. Or verse 2, this month shall be your beginning of months. This is where we start. Start from here, and now you always are counting your months and your days, to know when to worship me. It shall be the first month of the year to you, and on the tenth month you shall select the land. We've already gone through this, but on that tenth, that tenth day of that month, that's when you select the lamb to be part of Passover. So we can see here how Passover fits into the story, why everything starts with Passover, that once we were banished from, from the Garden of Eden, and God ended up selecting a family to work with and set up a covenant with him. And over the course of several hundred years, brought Israel down to its knees, brought this family down to its knees. That it wasn't about them. It was about God's glory. And that he was going to work with this family to save not just them, but everyone. It now started with Pat. We're going to start things. We're going to come up. This shall be the beginning of months. 
We're going to start a whole brand new system here. It's going to start with the Passover. We're going to select this lamb. And we're going to have this lamb killed. And before you eat it, you're going to paint its blood on the doorpost so that I know that you've committed to this. And I'm going to pass, I'm going to pass over you. I will pass over you. And then you're going to eat it. And we're going to get out of here. And they're going to kick you out of here. And we're going to, we're going to leave this slavery that we've been in for hundreds of years. We'll continue to delve into various aspects of the Passover in the coming five weeks as we lead up to our keeping of the Passover on the 14th day of the first month of the, of the new calendar year. There's so much more to cover as it relates to the various the deep, deep meanings of Passover and how we keep it today. Before we, we close, let's take a few minutes here. We're not done yet. Let's look at the New Testament Passover. We've walked through here. And we've seen how the Old Testament Passover kicked things off for Israel. And how once God had brought them down to where he needed them to be, weak, powerless, and in need of salvation, he said, okay, we're going to start. This will be a brand new beginning of months. And we're going to start with this Passover. John 7. Let's take a quick peek at the New Testament Passover and bring this into the story. And again, we won't have we there's no possible way we can cover everything today. But let's just look at how the New Testament Passover now becomes part of this storyline. John seven verse fifty seven. I wrote down John seven and it's not John seven. Give me a second here. I had John 7 in mind, and I typed it into my notes. Uh, I am that I am is what I'm looking for, and I'm certainly open to the first one to find it. John 6, I think it's John 6. Let's go back there. Yes, John 6. in the world did I do, guys? It's not John 6 either. I apologize to those listening to this online. I've written down a, a an errant scripture here. Give me one second. Before Abraham was, I am. That's where we're looking for. Hmm? John 8. Thank you, sister. Thank you. John 8. John 8. Jesus here. Speaking to the Jews. In verse 7, verse 57, John 8, they said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you claim you have seen Abraham. This is starting to be part of the, the problem the Jews are having with this man, Jesus, is that he's claiming these things that he, that he was, that he's, no, he is God, he's the Son of God, he was around and saw Abraham. You're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. 
Why would he say that? Links them right back to their scriptures that they know. What made them feel powerful, what made them feel special and chosen was that God had reached down and chosen their father Abraham. They were misaligned in thinking this was all about their own glory. But they knew the scripture that when Jesus was using the word I am, he was saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God that was there with Abraham, that selected Abraham. I am the God that Abraham has been following. I am the one who was there in Egypt and helped bring you out of the land of Egypt, your, your forefathers. Luke 1. Luke 1. Yahweh was amongst them. Earlier I had mentioned John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and his prophecy. We'll read part of it here in verse 76 of Luke 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. His son, John the Baptist, would be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the, the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. This this. This, the highest, this Messiah that had been promised throughout the pages of, of prophecy was, going to, was, on, was on his way. He was coming. And he was coming to bring salvation to the people and to bring remission of sins. We're starting to see now the connection to the New Testament Passover, to Passover in the, in the New Testament, the New Covenant. Through the tender mercy of our God, which was the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. These prophecies are starting to point to the Messiah, to this Jesus who's coming to bring salvation to the people. And he's bringing salvation for the remission of sins. Let's go to Back up to verse 73. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Again, making this connection to the story that this Messiah that was coming was the same Yahweh that provided this covenant, that, that Abraham swore his covenant to, that, he, that Abraham received the covenant from. Let's go to Luke 2, over the page to Simeon's prophecy in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This older man, Simeon, that had seen the Christ child could now die in peace. You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Remember what he had promised Abraham, that they would be a blessing to all peoples. So here, Simeon is saying he's coming to reveal himself to the Gentiles and to provide glory to Israel. Of course, we've covered that before, that Christ here is revealing salvation to Israelites and non-Israelites. He is Yahweh. Let's go to John 1. 
he introduced himself later on in John 7 as the I am, immediately they would recognize that he was the Yahweh that was with Moses, that was with Abraham. Now we're starting to make a connection here to this Old Testament Passover, this original Passover back in, back in Moses' time. John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now it's not just Yahweh, but now it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They hear Yahweh. They think the I am from when he introduced himself to Moses. Here, they think the Lamb of God. Instantly, we go back to the Passover in the time of the Exodus, who takes away the sin of the world. Back then, he passed over them, and they did not uh, receive the punishment of, the, of the, the death angel. Here, what was coming was a lamb who would take away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Dropping down to verse 34, John saying, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Yahweh, the Son of God, and the Lamb of God is who this Christ, this Jesus, is. And here's where we start to make the connection. From the initial story of the blood of the lambs of Israel, painted on the doorposts that would allow the angel to pass over and not invoke the death penalty, we go from that to the real story about how the blood of the lamb would be shed for his own creation for the remission of their sins so that we don't receive the death penalty that was promised that was that was explained to us back in Genesis 2 John 3:16 We go from the story of the blood of the lambs of Israel to the blood of the Lamb of God, shed for all of his creation, so that we see that God loved all of the world, wanted them all to receive the blessing, to be blessed through the family of Abraham, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we go from this old covenant Passover of the killing of the lambs, a reminder that God pulled them out of, of slavery, pulled them out of bondage to Israel, to this future Passover that would be the Lamb of God, whose shed blood would cover our sins. Matthew 26. We're coming down to the end here. But we're seeing how this all plays into this millennia-long story that is covered here in the pages of your Bible. Matthew 26. We read how at the time of the Exodus, they would kill a lamb. They would roast it in its entirety, head, entrails, everything as one, eat it, and then burn what was left over. And they would put the wine on the door. Here, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. This is the real body of the real lamb of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed not so that the death angel will pass over your house in Egypt and not kill the firstborn, but is shed for the remission of your sins, so that you do not incur the eternal death penalty that is yours because of your sins. But I say to you, I will drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The symbols of the new covenant Passover are now for the remission of sin so that we can have our sins forgiven and partake of, be part of this beautiful storyline that we, that we have come to know and follow and commit to. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23, Paul tells us that he received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took of the cup, we've just read that, after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as Often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Leviticus 23 tells us we do it on an annual basis. Every first month of the, of the Hebrew year on the 14th. And here Paul reiterates that, that not only did Christ do it with his disciples, but Paul received it personally from Christ when he was, when he was with him. We're to continue to do that. Why? Not not just because Paul said so, but because Christ says Yahweh said so back at the time of the Exodus. That would it would be an ordinance forever. How we keep it has changed. That we keep it never does. Because it is part of the worship system. And we do it every year on the very night that Christ did it with his disciples. Whether we've been celebrating Passover for forty years or whether we are new to the story, this is an exciting time of year. We are ramped up back again to be able to gather and commemorate these annual events that lead us from our banishment from Eden into the kingdom of God. Our temporal lives of sin and being separated from God, being out of his connectivity with him, ultimately to a resurrection into his family never to be separated from him again. We read that, Revelation 21 and 22. That's how the story ends. We will never be separated from him again. But it all starts with the events of the Passover. Because of our action, as, as man, this, as this character man in this storyline that, that, that we read here in our scriptures, this nonfiction storyline, because we made our choice, We now lost my train of thought there. Sorry about that. Because we made our choice, we are now part and parcel of this process through the Passover to regain this glory, to regain this this connection with our Father. We're going to continue to dive deeply into the, the, the deep meaning of the Passover. Let's close in John chapter 19. As we understand... 
this storyline and how now Passover plays a part and has its place in this story. And we're about to now delve into this in a deeper way. This is why in his dying words, John 19, verse 30, Christ could say, it is finished. It is finished. This part of the plan of redemption, this part of the plan, so critical to the rest of the plan, this is where it starts. It started with Passover, and here when Christ said, it is finished, this part of the plan was now complete. He was now the Passover lamb. No longer needing to kill a lamb, have a priest kill a, kill a lamb every, every 14th of the year, for, of the first month of the year. Christ was now this Passover lamb, and he was there for the remission of our sins, killed for the remission of the sins of his creation. What a story we continue to read about every, every week, every day of our lives, and this is a true story that we are blessed to be able to live out each and every year. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.